Hello, and welcome to episode number 38 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacadamian. The UFO phenomenon is a topic that has undoubtedly seen a rise in interest amongst the general public in recent years. This, of course, has much to do with startling videos of officially declared UAP, that is, unidentified aerial phenomena, that were discussed in some detail in a groundbreaking New York Times article in 2017. More recently, discussions have only increased following a classified report delivered to Congress in 2021 by an officially sanctioned Department of Defense task force. Indeed, this momentum really has helped to make this topic, if not exactly headline news around the world, at least a subject that no longer garners outright ridicule and derision in the mainstream. Still, that said, what is perhaps an even more intriguing, startling, and consequential aspect of the UFO phenomenon still tends to fly under the radar when it comes to mainstream coverage. Here I speak of contact with the apparently non-human intelligences piloting these craft. As those of us intimately familiar with this enigmatic topic know all too well, this aspect is central to our quest to understand the ultimate origin and intentions of these others. Contrary to what many cynics and naysayers might claim, those who do experience this kind of contact with alien entities are not necessarily conspiracy theorists obsessed with this topic. In fact, many who have experienced this kind of sudden and initially unwanted contact, known as abduction, had no interest nor familiarity with this topic beforehand. From their point of view, it was an event, or more commonly, a series of events, that seemed to be suddenly thrust upon them from out of nowhere. One such individual is Jim Sparks. With a background as a run-of-the-mill real estate developer from South Florida, only really concerned with fulfilling his vision of the American dream, the last thing on his radar was otherworldly visitors and trips to their apparently sophisticated spacecraft. And yes, at some point in his adult life, this is precisely what he started experiencing. And these events were far from rare. At the height of his experiences, he was being abducted multiple times a month. Unlike some contact slash abduction experiences that offer up only foggy, jumbled memories of alien figures and supposed off-world technology, Sparks experienced full-on education sessions where these others sought to teach him their own language and fostered his capacities along the psi spectrum, including abilities such as telepathy and psychokinesis. What's even more striking about Sparks' case, making it even more difficult for naysayers to dismiss, is that all of these memories were recalled consciously, that is, without the need for what is commonly known as regression therapy. In retelling events, Sparks makes it clear that, from the onset of these experiences, as frightening as they initially were, he made a mental note to do his very best to remain conscious throughout. And unlike many others who wished to do the same, he was surprisingly successful in this endeavor, ultimately remembering almost every aspect of the events. What was the nature of these consciously recalled experiences? And what did the communication between Sparks and these apparent alien others reveal about their ultimate intentions, not just for him, but for all of humanity? 
The answers that emerged according to Sparks' experience reveal a kind of symbiotic arrangement that some might find as disconcerting and disturbing as others may find encouraging and enlightening. And these are the very matters we'll seek to explore in this, the 38th episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. As we begin this week's episode, you'll probably note that we've discussed multiple abduction slash contact experiences over the course of this podcast. I think it's important to return to these rather than just always looking from the big picture because the events people experience, the details of those events should inform our understanding of the entire phenomenon. And I'd like to start now with what Jim Sparks begins to experience, what kind of events he endures, and how he is determined, as I mentioned in the introduction, to remain conscious throughout. By the way, as we begin here, I would just recommend that you go ahead and buy this book that he's written. I think it's a very compelling read. I don't always say that, but I really do think this one is good and has a lot of detail, covers a lot of events that we can't get to in the course of this podcast. Jim Sparks' book is titled The Keepers, An Alien Message for the Human Race. Okay, now let's get to his experience. Quoting from the book, quote, If I had a history of strangeness in my life, I might have taken this all in stride. But the truth was that I'd never had a paranormal experience before in my entire life. Surely this kind of thing just didn't happen to a businessman. As I got out the vacuum cleaner from the laundry room and vacuumed the carpet, making sure to remove every flower, twig, or blade of grass, by the way, as a quick aside, that came from a previous abduction experience. Back to the quote, I thought how relieved I was that Teresa was out of the house. I wouldn't tell her, not yet. I couldn't hide this from myself. I was consumed with questions about what had happened. I wanted to talk to Teresa. I was pretty rattled, and I started flubbing up on my job. But I also didn't want to scare my wife, and I certainly didn't want to give her cause to think I was crazy. No, it was best to just wait and make sure myself. I would wait for it to happen again. Also, I decided that the next time I had one of these weird dreams, I would make an effort to remember more detail. About a week later, the same dream came to me again, and I sensed a presence at my bedside. Teresa lay beside me, sleeping soundly, and I can remember thinking in my semi-conscious state, dream, it's just a dream. My resolution to remember kicked in. I was going to try to see who was doing this, Focus, I thought, pay attention, who or what was this presence? In the dimness, I was able to make out that these beings were shorter than the average human. Then the familiar dream unrolled. Being pulled from the bed, walking down the hall, the shock of passing through the window and wall into the lawn, crossing the street and going into the woods beyond. Then the aroma of honeysuckle. Next morning, as soon as I experienced the familiar paralysis, I headed straight for the guest room. Sure enough, there were the footprints in the carpet and the honeysuckle flowers. While I had gained a valuable piece of information about these events, why was I being carried from my house by short creatures? Strange and upsetting as all this was, though, it was nothing compared to the events that came next. With all my strength and will, I thought, if this bizarre experience happens to me again, 
I will be present and conscious. I will remember. I showed Teresa the honeysuckle, told her about the incident and my feelings. She insisted I was playing some kind of strange joke. People in the bedroom? I would have heard them, she said. Don't be silly. Unquote. Now, there is much that is captured in that retelling of that early experience, at least an early experience that he recalled. First of all, he initially thought these were strange dreams he was having, so he decided to try and become lucid in them, basically. But as that unfolded and he saw actual evidence on the carpet leading towards a window as if he had been led by something from the outside back into the house and that it left flowers and grass on the carpet. He obviously realized this seemed like an actual tangible physical event. So he decided next time he was going to try and be even more conscious so he could really find out what was happening. Now, what's also interesting is his wife remains asleep the entire time. We're familiar with that scenario where a spouse or a friend is out of it completely comatose seemingly while abduction experiences apparently happen. This demonstrates the control these others have not only over us, but of all human beings that are around. Now, what's interesting here in this case is despite her protests, his wife, Teresa, actually has more memory, more familiarity with these others and these experiences than she initially lets on. But we'll get to that. Now, because this is yet another abduction slash contact case, and because we've discussed a few of these now, it might be helpful to step back a little bit and look at the big picture point of view. These cases, these abduction scenarios are actually controversial, even within those familiar with the UFO phenomenon. They're controversial because on one side, you have people who believe these are real, but dreamlike. And you also have a different group that believes these are real and actually physically happening in our physical universe. And then you have a third set, which is sort of a combination of the two, but more nuanced in a way, because the idea is that real events are happening, but that in addition to perhaps happening in an altered state of consciousness, there is also kind of screening going on where images and scenarios are projected into the consciousness of the individual. So they experience one kind of scenario, but that only hides what is going on underneath. Now, you're probably familiar that many people who experience abductions have screen memories. That involves things like seeing an owl, which we'll get to, by the way, that plays a strong role in this case. They see owls or they see deer or they might see workmen on the road. And then only later, sometimes through hypnotic regression, do they remember that those actually weren't workmen or owls or deer. They were actually something like gray aliens or reptilians or mantids or what have you. Now, a possibility that some have brought up is that if we indeed already strongly believe that screen memories are used where we see a deer or an owl or workmen when really what's going on is aliens are showing up on the scene, then what's to say the entire event isn't another layer of a screen memory? In other words, pull back the onion one more layer and even that, the entire abduction scenario, what if that also is a screen memory? 
What if these actually aren't aliens at all? And they don't really look that way. And you're not really being taken to a spacecraft, even though you remember that, even if it takes one level of regression to get to that memory. What's to say there aren't even deeper memories or deeper levels of reality that this is happening in? Because they have so much control over our consciousness and our experience of reality, our perception of reality, these are valid questions. That said, while I think there is some appeal to that argument, it is somewhat self-defeating because it assumes that we can never really know what's going on. I think we can do better than that personally. I also think that some people who put forward that argument don't like the abduction scenarios. They often are people who prefer more of a love and light or enlightened being kind of experience, and they don't like some of the nasty or at least challenging, startling, disturbing details that sometimes arise in these experiences. I don't think we can be so quick to dismiss those aspects, though, and say that's just a screen memory and there's a deeper reality that is always positive. But these are issues we should think about because this is complex. Okay, let's move on. Okay, so putting aside for a moment the question of in what level of reality do these experiences take place and how literally do we remember them, let's return to Jim Sparks' experiences. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, one of the interesting aspects about his case is that these abduction experiences weren't just random and it's not like he was taken on board a craft and then came back and didn't remember anything of import actually taking place. To the contrary, he actually underwent a kind of schooling by these others. Of course, people like Whitley Strieber have talked about similar experiences. In this case, Jim was learning about the alien alphabet. And I want to quote from that part of the book. Quote, The letter A appeared on the wall screen. Next to it was some strange hieroglyph. Somehow I sensed that it was supposed to be another language's equivalent. The alien letter faded and then traced itself out again, as though to instruct me on its formation. I grasped immediately that I was supposed to write the alien letter out on the table screen before me with a forefinger." Unquote. Now, this part of the book is very interesting, somewhat disturbing. It definitely makes you think anyway, because it's very clear that these others, these apparent alien beings that initially Jim Sparks assumes are ETs, extraterrestrials, are using a kind of punishment and reward kind of scenario to get him to learn their alien language. Now, some will find this alarming because they don't seem to ask his permission before they embark on these teaching sessions. He feels a kind of pressure in his head when he refuses to learn and feels a kind of euphoria when he obeys. So he definitely gets the sense that they are the ones in control. And this is what you're confronted with early in his book. The sense that he is taken against his permission, sometimes, in fact, most times, not knowing when it's going to happen. And in addition to that, they are very much in control throughout the process, and they very much steer the nature of his experiences, basically forcing him to learn or else. Now, the nature of the relationship does change over time, as we've seen with many of these encounters, but we'll get to that. Now, earlier on, I mentioned screen memories and symbolic kind of images, such as owls. In the abduction literature, owls are front and center. 
they often use that screen memory apparently to cover over a more alarming reality, which is that an alien is in your midst. Often when people have regression done, they realize those owls aren't actually owls. And of course, the most famous experiencer this happened to is probably Whitley Strieber, and he covers this aspect in a lot of detail in the first three books that he wrote about the phenomenon, the Communion Trilogy. Now, Sparks talks about his own experience with these owls and reflects on Strieber's writing. Quoting from his book again, quote, Later, however, because of specialists who helped me understand that I was not alone in these experiences, I learned that while every abductee has his own unique encounters with aliens, there are some elements of the abduction phenomenon that keep recurring. For instance, this translucent owl, which gave me the feeling of the presence of a great wisdom. Now, whether or not that was because I'd always thought about owls as symbols of wisdom, I don't know. My friend Tim from my alien abductee support group, which I didn't join, alas, until years after my first experiences, told me owls figured prominently in Whitley Strieber's communion. Strieber saw lots of owls in the woods by his cabin where he had many of his abduction encounters. The visitors like symbols, I guess. To me, it soon became apparent that what this spectral owl signified, it meant school. It meant time for class. I got to know it as a symbol meaning, get ready to learn, Jim Sparks. Almost every time the visitors take me, they show me a symbol. Perhaps it keys off some kind of subliminal response in my psyche. I gather from my abductee brothers and sisters that Whitley Strieber's thoughts on owls have gone very deep in the abductee mindset. For me though, it was simple. A representation or symbol of an owl meant to adjust my mindset to learn. It's become obvious to me that there are subtle shadings of meaning introduced with the alteration of these holographic forms. That night, though, sitting on my couch, staring at that perched owl with large, strange, round eyes, horns, feathers, beak and talons staring down at me, you can bet I wasn't paging through Freud's book about dream meanings. So just to be clear about what Sparks just referred to, what he mentions in the book quite frequently is that before he's abducted, before these experiences happen, he's given some sort of holographic symbol, which gives him some sort of understanding of what's going to take place while on board the supposed craft, what's going to happen in the hours he's gone. Sometimes it's a learning session, what he calls school, and when that was the case, he would see an owl. Other times, it would be a medical session. Either they would be checking on his health, or they may be extracting semen, because he definitely seemed to be involved in a hybridization program. Again, some people find that difficult to deal with. We'll discuss it more a little bit later. But when that was going to be the case, he would see some sort of medical tool, again, in the form of some kind of holographic projection, that would let him know that the experience that night was going to be of that variety. Now, when it came to the nature of these others, it became clear to Sparks that they were clearly superior to us, that they thought much more quickly and in a more advanced way than we do. And indeed, as he continued to have these sessions where he would learn their alphabet, he recognized it wasn't a simple one-to-one -one in terms of the letter A corresponding to a symbol in their language. There was more than that going on. 
they were beginning to change the way his brain worked. Somehow this was happening behind the scenes. He began to get a sense of this. And of course, with this, we're reminded of the movie Arrival, where something similar happens, where the character in that movie, who is a linguist, who's brought on board to try and understand their language, finds that the way she perceives reality and even time begins to change as she learns their language. Now, this is fascinating. And in my background with psychology, we learned about this, how linguistics is tied very closely to thought. When we learn a language, it very much encompasses what we can even conceive of in terms of structuring thought. There's very much a close relationship there. And in this case, as Sparks learned their language, he realized things were beginning to change in the way his brain processed reality. And I want to quote from that section of the book, quote, the letter A appeared. Next to it was the alien equivalent. At the time, I thought it was a conversion from our alphabet to theirs. I'm no linguist, but I figure that just because the English alphabet has 26 letters doesn't mean that alien creatures from wherever have an alphabet or language of their own that directly corresponds to our alphabet. However, for some reason, this was the way they taught. There must have been some other kind of process going on inside my mind, and this was the way I interpreted it in a literal kind of way. Whatever, these guys sure were working on my wiring." Unquote. Now, what you'll find interesting about these various abduction experiences is how many commonalities there are. I find that very striking. That tells me that something really is happening. Now, the question of whether or not it's a screen memory or something literal is a different conversation. But the fact that these various people are having such similar experiences suggest that these are more than just anomalies of the brain or something like that. Something external really is putting people through the paces, so to speak. And one of the interesting commonalities we find is the kind of beings that are encountered. Again, we mentioned some of them earlier, the greys, the reptilians, the mantids, and on it goes. Of course, we have the Nordics and the tall whites, other kind of humanoid figures as well. Now, as we've discussed before, sometimes people conclude that the small greys may be robots or androids of a sort or some sort of hybrid combination of an organic being and something programmed. Now, in addition, there are the taller greys or beings that look somewhat like the greys. There are some distinct differences too. And this is exactly what Jim Sparks encounters in his abduction scenarios. He encounters the small greys and he perceives them as a kind of robot. Then there are those that are taller, about five feet tall, and he refers to these as supervisors. These seemed like fully organic biological beings to him, and he would even notice details like wrinkles in their skin, suggesting that they age. And it was very clear to him that these were the ones really running the scenes. These were the ones in charge. And I want to quote from a section of the book right now where he discusses having a very up close and personal experience with one of these supervisors. Quote, I could sense this being leaning down. I could feel its head no more than three inches from mine. I couldn't quite make out him directly but I got the suggestion of an outline of a face and a taller body. In retrospect, I realized that this thing was some sort of manager or supervisor, while the others were underlings. This was organized like a beehive with drones and workers. 
As I think back on my experiences now, I realize that I noticed something about those first two aliens I encountered. They seemed a little robotic, with rather unnatural movements. Their mannerisms were more programmed and methodical, whereas the larger supervisors had a fluid, more definitively biological movement. Even then I thought the workers were the creation of the other, taller visitors. The workers are shorter with large eyes and featureless blank faces. The supervisors, as I was beginning to make out now, were tall with that same leathery texture to their faces. Their eyes and heads are a little bigger than ours, but not nearly as large as the workers, and their eyes are much more focused. Both the supervisor beings and workers have bodies that are very skinny, almost atrophied." Unquote. Now, speaking of the appearance and nature of these others, over time, various clues suggested Jim Sparks that perhaps these beings aren't extraterrestrial so much as interdimensional, and there are a variety of reasons why he concludes that. Now, of course, this is interesting because this is one of the main questions bantied about amongst the UFO community. Where do these beings come from? Are they extraterrestrial, meaning coming from some other planet within our physical construct of a universe? Or are they perhaps from some alternate dimension and hopping back and forth from that locale to our dimension? Now, I'd like to quote from a section of the book where Sparks is talking about this. Quote, this was also about the time that, despite my ragged state, I was beginning to perceive other strangeness, and I began formulating a theory, namely that these things or creatures may not be from another planet so much as from another dimension. I'd noticed that when I saw them in this world, they only seemed to be partly here. Also, I would see these visitors walking through walls. My dimension theory would explain this, since it would afford them the ability to work in our dimension and yet be in theirs at the same time. A kind of phasing effect, if you will. Anyway, that's what I was starting to think, and future experience bore me out. This business with the dancing knickknacks in the house was the result of my interaction with the field. The more I got abducted, the stronger this residual effect got. The paranormal activity I discovered later when I got involved with researchers and groups happens to most abductees, as do precognitive activities, which I'll discuss later. Unquote. So, very interesting here. We have Sparks theorizing that perhaps because they are somewhat translucent, this might mean they are only partly here. And we've definitely talked about this. This would allow them to appear and disappear on demand, basically. Now, what's also interesting is he begins to experience these poltergeist-like effects. And we've discussed this before. In fact, we talked about it last week in the John Keel episode. The fact that this does happen to many experiencers, that once they've had contact with these others, their reality around them in their everyday experience begins to show strange side effects, things like electrical charges, surges, power going in and out, devices not working properly, that kind of thing. That seems to happen quite often. An interesting question, of course, is what causes this? As I mentioned last week, I've theorized that once that door has been opened, something seems to be flipped on like a switch, and this allows various different realities to interact with you. That might be part of it. It may also just be that there is kind of a residual effect, 
And that's what Spark seems to be hinting at here. And this will, for a period of time, show up in strange manifestations around electrical devices and whatnot. Now, at this point, I want to make it clear that this was not just an interesting intellectual exercise for Jim to ponder about. No, these experiences were having profound effects on his everyday life, profound effects on his job and on his marriage. And I want to quote from the section of the book where he talks about the strain becoming too much. Quote, In real life, though, things started falling apart. I was an emotional mess. All the things that keep a normal life functioning, friends, family, business, and personal life began to disintegrate. People began to suggest to me that I seemed to be having some sort of psychological difficulty. I knew that already. They just didn't know why. In mid-March 1989, the strain was too much. I was on the verge of losing my mind, and I felt like a pressure relief valve about to blow. Should I confess to Teresa? I was still concerned that it would frighten her and maybe wedge something between us. I knew nothing about people like Bud Hopkins or alien abduction support groups at the time. You would think I'd go to a library and research. All I can say was that I just didn't realize that other people could be like me. I just wasn't media connected and besides, I guess just wasn't thinking straight." Unquote. Now, of course, this is very common. People go through this quite frequently, and we should always remember this part of the phenomenon, that it turns people's lives upside down. Perhaps now it's somewhat easier that people can get in contact with support groups more easily. And even Jim mentions that nowadays, this is much more accepted and seems to be part of the lore of our history as a civilization. People have at least heard about these kinds of things. But when it was happening to Jim back in the 1980s, it was much less known. He certainly didn't know much about it, and he didn't realize at first that other people may be having the same experience as he was having. And again, it made him even question his own sanity. At this point, he still hadn't talked to his wife either, hadn't confessed what had been happening to him, or at least what he had perceived was happening to him. Because again, often people wrestle with the nature of these experiences, the reality of them. Now, as I just mentioned, at this point, he hadn't even shared with his wife what was going on. He didn't want her to think he was crazy. But something happened that made him much more ready to talk to her about it. What happened was, in the middle of one of these abduction scenarios, when he is learning the alien language in one of these school sessions aboard a starship, a wall becomes transparent, and in another room, sitting and staring at a screen, was his wife, was Teresa. She was apparently also being schooled in this alien language. And again, not just language, but a different kind of thinking. Now, you might think, this could have just been a hallucination. This could have just been a projection by these others. Again, they can manipulate our perception in many ways. That's a fair assumption or at least postulation to make. But later on, Jim actually confronts his wife back in the waking world. And eventually she admits, yes, indeed, she's had experiences with these others. In fact, going all the way back to childhood. She doesn't call them aliens, though. She doesn't see them like that. Again, from her background, her cultural milieu, what she calls them is my helpers from heaven. But she's clearly 
compartmentalize that part of her life. She doesn't talk about it. She knows that they don't really want her to talk about it. So she follows orders. That part of her life happens, but kind of in the background. And she doesn't even want to talk about it anymore with Jim. So even though he has this common experience with his wife, he still has to go it alone from then on, trying to make sense of these experiences. Now, speaking of family connections, if you read the book, you'll find out that eventually Jim shares his experiences with his parents. Now, his father doesn't really want to hear about it. He's fairly dismissive. But his mother eventually confesses to Jim that she, too, has had lifelong experiences with these others. Again, though, the frame of reference for her is different. The way she interprets them is different. She calls them doctors, and she sees them as somehow helping her medically. But she, too, tends to compartmentalize it like his wife and doesn't talk about it much beyond that. Now, eventually, as I mentioned earlier, the nature of the relationship with these others begins to change. And he begins to refer to his experiences as going from resistance to cooperation. He sees these others more like equals, even though they are clearly still in charge in some ways and in control, they begin to treat him more like an equal once they feel that they can trust him. And speaking of that, they actually put him through various tests to prove to themselves that they can trust him. And after that, the nature of the relationship begins to change. And this part of the phenomenon has been discussed before. It does seem to be the case that our fight or flight reactions are perhaps overwhelming to them. And that's partly why they have such a standoffish attitude towards us and can come across as uncaring and unfeeling. But eventually, again, the relationship does change for Jim, as it has for other people we've discussed on this podcast. He also begins to get what he perceives as direct answers to his questions, and that's a new turn of events. Quoting from the book again, quote, I appreciated this new kind of attitude toward me. What are you creatures that you can do something like that? The energy they radiated was not a bluff. I knew they were going to give me a truthful answer. We are star people. Okay, so you say, but what exactly is that supposed to mean? Star people, like you're from another star? Okay, but people? Look, humans are people, and you're not human, certainly. They had no response to that. But I'd been thinking about something else, and as long as they seemed to be listening to me, I figured I might as well let go with it. Okay, so you're from another star, which means you get back and forth in some sort of starship. So if I wanted to go with you, you know, travel the universe, would you take me? Yes. Much time passed in thought because I knew they meant what they said. If I didn't like it, would you bring me back home? No. Clearly, they could do what they wanted with me at any time. They'd proven that. Nonetheless, I sensed that they were telling the truth. They would take me away if I requested it, for whatever reason. They were actually responding and listening to me, and I found their offer intriguing. Then I began thinking, no more hot dogs, hamburgers, steaks, and oh my god, no beer, plus the smell of cut grass that gave me a warm feeling. I contemplated this for a moment, then said, I love the earth, and as much as I'd like to go, I'd better pass for now, but just for now, unquote. 
So let's be clear about what Jim determined in terms of the nature of the relationship between himself and these others, and in fact, between many human beings, apparently, and these others. They apparently have been interacting with us for a generation, millennia, in fact. At one point, they showed him these projections of various previous incarnations going back in time, a couple centuries at a time, all the way back, indeed, to early humanity, where we were basically not much more than apes. And it was clear that they had been interacting with us throughout. In addition, there was clearly a hybridization program going on. And of course, this is very familiar to us. This kind of scenario is discussed often in the UFO phenomenon. It happens to people a lot of the time. Indeed, Jim goes on to one day meet a daughter that he recognizes, that he sees her as having some of his features, even though she has the larger eyes and various other aspects, the small nose, the slit for a mouth, that definitely show that she is also partly alien. The interaction they have is warm, even though it is telepathic in nature. Now again, some people will still be disturbed by the nature of these interactions, because even though they become more cooperative with him, more sharing with him over time once they trust him and sense that he won't act like a caged animal, from another perspective, they are still very much the ones in control. They are the overseers. They are the ones taking human beings supposedly on board these craft and extracting either semen or eggs in the case of females and using these to supposedly create hybrids. Now, there is another side of things, though, and that is that they do give things in return. For instance, Jim finds that they often will operate on him medically when something is wrong with him. At one point, he was very, very sick with a very severe flu that perhaps it seemed like he might not recover from, even though he didn't get sick very often. They showed up on the scene, did some various operations and some explorations into the nature of his illness, and the next morning, he woke up and was completely healed. Also, as I mentioned earlier, there was various capacities that came online along the psi spectrum, and he sees this as directly connected to teachings that they gave him. Again, as I mentioned earlier, he begins to realize the implications of their teachings were much deeper than he first understood, that the nature of the teaching was somehow changing the way his brain operated, that he could begin to think at the speed that they could, and that he could also begin to manipulate his physical environment through the use of capacities such as telekinesis. So this is why I referred to the nature of the relationship between human beings and these others as symbiotic, because we clearly seem to have been, for a very long period of time, perhaps our entire history, connected to and associated with these others. And they get things from us, and in exchange, they do things for us. They take care of us medically and whatnot, and also perhaps increase our capacities, perhaps preparing us for something to come. In fact, Jim senses that this is exactly what is planned. Now, one of the penultimate scenes in the book is when a group of these others reveal their true appearance to Jim, according to them anyway. What he sees is a group of very large reptilians, and indeed, they are quite daunting in appearance. They say to him that they hid their true appearance because they knew it would put, quote, fear in his heart. 
they go on to say that they have actually been in contact with human governments and they have tried to help humanity to transcend its level of consciousness. This is what they say to him, quote, There are some things you need to understand. Yes, it's true that we have been in contact with your government and heads of power. It is also true that agreements have been made and kept secret from your people. It is also true that in the past, some of your people have lost their lives or have been badly hurt to protect this secret. Our hands had no part in this. We contacted your leaders because your planet is in grave trouble. Your leaders said the vast majority of your population wasn't ready for anything like us yet. So we made the agreements with your leaders as to when your people would be made aware of our presence. This part of the agreement has not at all been kept. It was also agreed that in the meantime, steps would be taken to correct the environmental condition of your planet with our advice and technology. We say advice because we respect the fact that this is your planet, not ours. They also broke this agreement." Unquote. And here again, we're reminded of this symbiotic kind of relationship. Yes, perhaps they want things from us, our biological material apparently, but they also want to help us. Some people might look at that like they're just enabling a kind of cattle that they own. But I think it's more than that. It's more complicated than that. They clearly want to help human beings transcend their current level of consciousness. They're very aware, for instance, that we are doing grave damage to our planet. And of course, this is a theme that comes up repeatedly in the UFO phenomenon literature. Human beings that are abducted or contacted, whatever word you prefer, are shown apocalyptic images, are shown the world on fire, that kind of thing. In fact, Jim goes on to say that there are actually implants put into human beings while they are watching these projections of these apocalyptic images, which only increase the emotional turmoil and urgency people feel when they see these scenes. It seems like some sort of subconscious subliminal kind of messaging is taking place, perhaps with the hopes that a large group of human beings will really become enabled and equipped to start teaching others about the grave damage we are doing to the planet. Now, also, according to that section of the book I just read from, at some point, these others supposedly contacted our governments and wanted a mass disclosure to take place where their presence would be made known to all of us and that they would then help us to deal with the maladies we were facing, not the least of which was the environmental damage we were doing to the earth. And of course, also according to these others, the governments of the world did not honor agreements that were apparently made. Whether this actually happened is hard to tell for sure. It seems like that would be quite a secret to keep under wraps for this long, even though we have heard hints here and there. That said, if that did happen, perhaps that's why these others changed their approach and decided more of a mass subversive kind of contact where a kind of subliminal subconscious kind of entraining goes on amongst perhaps millions of human beings in order to facilitate a change that way. And on that note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, let's keep this conversation going and growing. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exo Academian, 
signing out.